So we're going to be looking at James chapter 1 and chapter 3. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Um, Mike Conn is one of the senior staff workers who the EU has asked to come and, and speak to us from James, so I'm going to pray for him just to ask God for help as we look at this passage. Would you like to join me as I pray? Our Father and our God, thank you that in your kindness uh, you show who you are to us. You reveal yourself to us, that we're not left in the dark. Uh, God, I ask 
that you would be at work in our hearts right now, uh, that we would be prepared to hear what you have to say to us through this passage. I ask that you'd speak your words through Mike, that we might know you and what you've done more clearly. And we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Fantastic. Okay, now, I'm uh, going to start off with a story, uh, a story about this man by the name of Jean-Claude Romand. Uh, Jean-Claude Romand is a Frenchman. Um, he used to live on the eastern part of France in a city called Provence Moens. It's not quite a city, actually. Uh, it's only a town of about 5,000 people or so. Um, but it's right on the uh, border of uh, Switzerland. And so he used to drive to Geneva to work, actually. Um, He's uh, a well-known in the town. He's married, uh, two lovely children that you can see there. But the great tragedy that happened was that his house caught on fire, his wife was burnt, his children were burnt, and it was just disastrous. You see, um, Jean-Claude was pretty well-known in the town. He, he, he was known as a doctor. Uh, he was known to be a person who used to drive to, across the border to Geneva to work in the World Health Organization. Uh, he was a, a researcher there and, and really well known. And, and you know, the, the other bit of the tragedy was that uh, he had undergone lots of suffering himself. And so what the town knew was that he was actually battling his fourth cancer. And he used to travel to Paris uh, to, to get treatment by an oncologist. But it was funny because what happened was that after the fires, when the police were investigating, they discovered a few anomalies, actually. Uh, as they looked at the body of the wife, they found that she had head injuries, that her head had been bashed in. When they looked at his children, they actually found gunshot wounds, and the time of the death was actually before the fire. As they went and look for more information and dis uh, do more discovery and investigation. Uh, they rang up the World Health, Organiz uh, World Health Organization in Geneva and they'd never heard of him. Uh, they, they checked the medical school back in Lyons in France and yes, he was enrolled in the undergrad program uh, and he started doing med school but he actually never finished. There was just anomalies all over the place. They just couldn't work it out. And so, as they tried to find out more and more, it, it just didn't fit. He, they, they tried to ring up the oncologist in, in Paris. They'd never heard of him. And this man had lived a complete lie for 20 years of his life. With marriage, with kids, lying about research, lying about his work in Geneva. You see, those overseas trips, they, they never happened. He used to drop off his kids at, to school, then drive across the border to work in France, and then just walk around town. All those overseas trips, well, he used to drive across to Geneva and park his car in the long-term car park, check himself into a hotel, read medical journals, uh, read brochures of Switzerland so he knows a little bit more about the place, read the newspaper so he rang home, he could tell what the weather was like in Moscow or, or England or, or, or Sydney or whatever. It was disastrous. And you think, how can he afford to live like that? Well, that was a lie too. So he actually secretly sold his wife's property and lived off the money for that. 
he went around his relatives, his own mum and dad, and said that, you know, you should invest in me because I've got all these hedge funds. And so he got all this money that he was just living off. And then it all started to unravel. His parents were getting old and they needed money and say, you know, John Claude, where's my money? And then his mistress in Paris, actually, not that he was visiting on colleges, actually wanted the $900,000 or 900,000 francs back. And he was getting desperate. So on the 9th of January 1993, Romain withdrew 2,000 francs. He bought a handgun, a silencer, some tear gas, and he asked for it to be gift wrapped. That night, he came home, bashed his wife to death on their double bed with a rolling pin, left her body until the morning, sleeping as normal. The next morning, he woke his children, had breakfast, watched some cartoons with them, put them to bed that night, and once he'd fallen asleep, once they'd fallen asleep, shot them both in the head. He went across uh, to his uh, parents' house, joined them for dinner. After dinner, they shot them both, as well as the family dog. He came back home, watched TV, poured petrol around the house, set it alight, took some uh, sleeping pills to look like it was an overdose. But he was rescued. Lies, deception, hypocrisy. It's awful, isn't it? He's due for release, actually, on parole in 2015. He's sitting in Paris uh, prison now. Today's talk is our second in the series of James, as Steph said, on wisdom that they don't teach you at university. And last week we've been looking at wisdom, and this week we're going to continue to look at wisdom, wisdom and words. But one of the big issues in the book of James is the issue of hypocrisy. Sort of like what Roman did. In fact, it's a pretty big issue in the whole of the Bible, isn't it? Uh, and, and Jesus was pretty uptight about it. Jesus hung around with tax collectors, he hung around all sorts of sinners and prostitutes, yet the one sin that he'd talk about all the time was hypocrisy. And so James is going to talk about that. And we're going to see that James actually links the idea of hypocrisy with words. And so what Steph read out for us earlier, at the end of uh, chapter 1, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. It's hypocritical. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's action. It's your words that's got to fit with the actions. It's, it's about hypocrisy. That's what James is about. But what we're going to see is that hypocrisy, this hypocrisy, in the book of James is tied up with words. And so let's have a little look at it. Uh, today, we're going to look at just, once again, two big points. Uh, God's implanted word, that's going to be our first point. And our second point, it's about our words. Uh, we're not going to look at point two until probably halfway down the second page. Um, and so there will only be about five minutes or so at the end that we're going to talk about that. Uh, but that's what we're going to do today. Let's start off in looking at God's implanted word. And um, if you've got your Bibles there, you'll see in verse 21, it starts off in verse 21 saying, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept, it, accept the word planted in you, which can save you. It's about God's word. Um, but whenever you see a therefore, you need to work out what it's there for, right? right? That's the thing that you've got to do all the time. And you've got to say, hey, look, is, is verse 18, is that related to just above or actually a little bit further up? And you remember that last week we finished on the subject of words. Last week, if you remember, uh, 
we, we, we talked about James being a letter written in the context of trials. And the danger is, under trials, because of our own evil desires, we're led to temptation. And our temptation is to blame God that he's not good enough, we're double-minded, we end up rejecting God, uh, and that's sin, and so that leads to death. What James tells us to do, actually, is that when we're under trials, we should consider it pure joy, that we should actually ask God for wisdom, the wisdom that's found in his word. It's through the implanted word, through God's word, that we have the first fruits uh, that, uh, that leads to salvation. Uh, that wisdom leads us to remember the purpose of our trials and suffering. That wisdom helps us to remember God's goodness. That wisdom helps us to remember the outcome. It's tied together. Last week, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. It's through that word that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that was created. And this week, it's that implanted word that we have to accept humbly. You want wisdom from God? Well, accept God's implanted word. And so you find in verse 21 there, the first thing it starts off with is the word humbly accept. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. This first fruits. And it's, you think it's, it's passive, isn't it? It's implanted in you. But here it's talking about an attitude of acceptance, that, that we should humbly accept it. You know how it is sometimes in, in small groups, in, in Bible study groups, everybody just seems to have their own opinion. You know, Bob has his opinion, Jane has his opinion, you have your own opinion. And God says, no, that's not wisdom. Wisdom is actually accepting what God says. Now, that, don't you just find it weird sometimes that, that all we want to do is argue and, and, and have trouble with it? And I think that's how it links back to the two previous verses, actually. So have a look there, verse 19. It says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And we think it's a great application for us, and I'm sure it is. But actually, this isn't anti-extroverts or something like that. It's actually related to that following verse in verse 21 about a humble acceptance. You see, I think verses 19 and 20, the anger that James is talking about is the anger with God. The speed to hear that James is talking about is the speed to hear God's word. The slowness to speak is the slowness to answer back to God. You see how it works? That word gives us wisdom that is the first fruits of eternity. That's the word that needs to be humbly implanted in us. The, the way that we accept that is humility, to accept it, not answer back quickly, not argue. Now, I'm not saying don't be intellectual about it because we've got to use our brains, but it's the attitude. It's the attitude of arguing and understanding so that you can obey it, not argue and, and reject, not quick to speak and reject. Do, do you get the difference there? Accept it with humility. You can't be double-minded. You want to listen to what God says. And yes, be academically rigorous, but submit to it. It has to do with God. Well, it's not just passive, though. It's actually action as well. And the first action it's got there in that verse, it actually says, therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. 
dispense with moral uncleanness, the malice and the ill will. Um, whenever you still love evil, you, you'll not actually receive, humbly accept the word of God properly. You've got to get rid of it. And the whole language there, it, it's, it's, it's a clothing metaphor. It's getting rid of those clothes that don't fit. Uh, when I first started working in medicine, if you were working the operating theatre, you can't wear your civilian clothes. You can't wear your street clothes. That would just pollute everything, actually. So what we used to have to do was to dress in our scrubs and scrub down and put gown and gloves and mask and, and funny little hats on and all that sort of stuff. But it's the appropriate clothing for that environment. If you're going to operate in the operating theatre, you can't wear your civilian clothes. And, and it's the sort of metaphor that James is using there. You, you can't go on with this life with accept, humbly accepting God's word and still keep on to the old stuff. Get rid of it. That's daggy. It just doesn't fit. Uh, one of my recurring nightmares is uh, an old memory of me turning up into, to a party, which was a formal party, dressed up in a rabbit suit, right? Like, I, I'd received the invitation. <laughs> it was terrible. I'd received this invitation ages and ages ago. And I'd been talking with my friend for, for a long time. And I'm sure she was saying that it was a dress-up party, right? And so I'd planned for ages and ages what I'd wear. And I drove up and walked in the door and... <laughs> it was bad. So nowadays, whenever I turn up to the party, I just sort of sit and watch and see who goes in and what they're dressed in before I actually go in. But, um, <laughs> but it's action. And James is saying, appropriate clothing. Are you dressed rightly? Get rid of those old things. They're daggy. They don't fit. They don't search. Well, in verses 22 to 25, he actually goes positive about the action not just a negative of getting rid of, but he says to the people, be doers of God's word. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. Yes, but the next verse, you've got to be doers. You can't just listen. You've got to do. It's all about action. And in fact, if you don't, you deceive yourselves. And so verse 16 in chapter 1, it says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. In verse 22 of chapter 1, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. In verse 26, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. A different Greek word used each time, but it's the same concept. It is so easy to be deceived. We think we go to public meetings, we go to small groups, we go to church, we go to our home groups at church, we go to camps, we go to annual conference, and please do sign up for annual conference. But we think that what's just we've done that, we're right. But James says, don't be deceived. Don't, don't just intellectualise things and, and just say, well, you know, heaven's going to be a big exam and I can pass it because I know that Jesus is my saviour or something like that. James says, no, you've got to be doers of the word. You've got to understand it and put it into action. And I think that's where chapter 2 comes in. I think one of the things that we do with James is that James is often treated like a Twitter feed, actually. Lots of great sayings and you can just pop them up 160 characters at a time or something like that. But I think there is actually a little bit of method in his madness and actually weave together. And I think chapter 2 gives an example, two examples, of this hypocrisy of what it looks like. Yes, what you need to do is humbly accept God's word. And what that acceptance, that humble acceptance of God's word looks like means action. You need to reject those bad things and those things of the past. You've got to live appropriately. And it means doing. And so when you get a bit of time later today or tomorrow, when you look at chapter 2, you'll find that the first half, it, it's the hypocrisy of showing favouritism. Because when you show favouritism, 
It's actually failure to do the law. Do you remember that bit that um, Steph read about people who uh, do the word of God? What they like is that they like looking intently into the mirror, intently into the perfect law. That's what they like. They're not like the people who look into the mirror and forget what they look like. Uh, In verse 25, it talks about the perfect law that gives freedom. You'll see it later on in chapter 2, verse 12, a little bit down the page. Uh, James talks, speak and act those... uh, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. There's that phrase again. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And if you go back up a little bit, James refers to that law again. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbours as yourself, you're doing right. What is this perfect law? What is this royal law? What is this law that gives freedom? It's about loving your brothers and sisters. It's about loving your neighbours. And you are a hypocrite if you say that you believe in that royal law, that perfect law that gives freedom, and you show favouritism. When you're judgmental, how can you say you love your brothers and sisters and love your neighbours when you commit adultery? How can you say that you love your neighbours when you steal from them? How can you say you love your neighbours when you murder them? It's just totally inconsistent. And I think it's the same way that you actually need to understand the second half of chapter 2 of James, which is often the really difficult passage, right? That's a bit where he talks about faith and works and and Luther calls James in the epistle a straw. But you need to read it in the context of chapter 1 to chapter 3. It actually makes sense there. You remember some of those famous verses? Chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Controversial? Verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. What happens to justified by faith alone? It's non-existent, he says. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. James is saying intellectual assent, without doing something about it, it's worse than useless. That's crazy. Don't do that. But I think James uses it as the second example of what he's been saying. That's hypocrisy. You see, James, as he gives his examples about demons and Abraham and Rahab and all that sort of stuff, it's talking about the hypocrisy of saying that you have faith and have no action. And he's doing a different thing to Paul. See, he says a person is justified by what he does. That's what James says. But justified in James doesn't mean what Paul means by it. Paul means when you're someone's justified, he's declared okay, that he's right with God, that a person's right with God. But that's not how James is using it in this context. James is saying that that person is vindicated. That person is shown to be right, proven to be true, proven to be the genuine item. When you see someone do their works, it vindicates their faith. Otherwise, it's just empty words. It's just intellectual assent. Do you see how it's different in James? Don't don't just pull it out and and put it in a theological statement because the way James talks about faith and the way that James talks about justification is actually different to Paul. And Paul and James actually agree with one another. Do you remember what Paul says after he talks about salvation by faith alone? Shall we go on sinning? By no means. If we're people who say that we're saved by faith alone, our actions need to be different. That's what it's about. 
James and Paul actually say the same thing and you actually need to understand that. Well, the next thing James goes on to talk about, yes, he's talked about God's word, God's word that leads to life, God's word that transforms us, God's word that's, that needs to be humbly implanted in us and that we need to put into action. But this whole passage, it's tied up with our own words. Remember in chapter 1, verse 26, that was read out for us? If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives themselves and his religion is worthless. James starts talking about teachers and that's because teachers, yes, they, they speak, but their life needs to match up with what they speak. And you guys know that, don't you? Good teachers aren't just people who can transfer information. They're amazing people. I remember Philip Jensen uh, once saying that you can tell a good teacher from a bad teacher by asking just one question. And the question you need to ask is, what do you teach? What do you teach? And if the teacher answers, well, I teach maths or science or something like that, well, you know that they're a bad teacher. Look, it's not a proof test. <laughs> but if the teacher says... I teach students, I teach primary school students. You know that they actually care for the people rather than just a subject matter that they're trying to con you know, convey. And you know that from your own teacher when you're growing up, don't you? Like the great teachers, yes, look, they could teach, but they weren't necessarily the one who understood their subject material and could just transfer the information. They were the really amazing people who cared for you who did more than just the classroom teaching, who looked after you outside class, who were genuinely concerned for you. It's more than just a subject matter. It's person as well. And James is saying, words is more than just the things that we say. It transforms our lives. Now, we all know about that, um, those great illustrations about the little thing which has big consequences. And he talks about a ship's rudder, he talks about a horse's bitch, he talks about all those sort of things and a little spark that can uh, start forest fires. So we're not going to go with that. But the big idea there is that James is saying words come from our tongue, come from our mouth and that little organ in our body can do amazing things and can transform incredible things. But the big issue that he's talking about is don't be hypocritical. Remember verse 9 to 11 of chapter 3? With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praising and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. It can't be like that. And it's just like what we started off with in chapter 1. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. It's crazy. It's hypocrisy. And you, oh Christian people, you need to work on that. It's not just about confessing the faith, but actually our mouths got to match it. I still remember many years ago, I was so excited. Uh, I was working uh, in um, a ministry apprenticeship at the University of New South Wales and I still remember seeing someone come to faith. His name was John. And I was so excited, right? So I got him to go to Wednesday night church, the congregation that I was part of. I took him to university church on Friday night. I took him into Sunday night Bible studies as well as meeting up with him, you know, each week uh, doing follow-up Bible studies. And, and after a while he said, Michael, stop it. It's just too much. Because by the time I, I understand what you're saying to me in the follow-up thing, uh, Wednesday night comes along and there's this whole lot of information and I really need to put it into practice. Here's this young Christian who actually got it right. Who actually thought, the stuff that I learn, it needs to transform my life and I need to be consistent with it. 
Now, that's not me saying don't go to small groups, don't go to public meetings. It's saying when you do, put it into practice. Talk with one another about it. Do it. It's important. Don't be double-minded. Don't say one thing and do another. Don't do that. Because James in this section is saying that wisdom comes by God's living word that needs to be implanted in us. We need to humbly accept it. Not argue with it. Not stand over it. But understand it and do it. Live it. Living it. And this whole section has got to do with our words. Because our words, we know that it's like that little spark that can start forest fires, don't we? We know that words can bring life and death. We can use our words to bring wholeness or we can use our words to cut people down. Our words can give hope in the midst of guilt and sin or our words can be used to humiliate, to guilt trip, to bully people, to discourage them. And it's so hard for us, isn't it? Especially in our Australian culture when we like putting people down just for fun. Uh, at the end of fourth year, uh, I went on a medical elective to Papua New Guinea working with an organisation called the Asia-Pacific Christian Mission. Uh, it was a fun time. But at that mission at Rungane in Papua New Guinea, we were separated in, in, into groups of missionaries of where we came from. So the Americans stayed in one place, the Canadians stayed in another place, the English, uh, the um, uh, people from England stayed in one place, and the Australian New Zealanders stayed in one place. And we used to have nighttime Bible studies where we gathered around. And one day, we found out that the Americans, who were right next door to our little hut, were praying for us, the Australian New Zealanders, because we were just slaying off each other. What they heard was that, you know, you stupid idiot, ah, oh, yeah, so-and-so. That's the way that we joked and that's the way we enjoyed. And next morning we found out they were really worried about the integrity of the team and they were praying for us and hoping that bad things don't happen. It's so easy. It's just part of our culture. It's part of our words. It's the things that we do all the time. And you know all those things that your mum taught you? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it. It's probably right. How important it is for us to think about the person that we're going to meet next and saying, if we've received those life-giving words from God, can we give life-giving words to other people? To give them encouragement. To speak words of the gospel. I want to finish off reading a story from a guy called Larry Crabb, who's this incredible Christian psychologist uh, who gives lots of great talks around uh, America, uh, really influential stuff. It's probably one of the first Christian books I read, actually, a book by Larry, Larry Crabb called Encouragement. Uh, I want to read his story about life words. Uh, this is Larry speaking. Uh, As a youngster, I developed a thoroughly annoying and humiliating problem of stuttering. Any person afflicted with this puzzling menace can tell you that certain letters and sounds are especially hard to say. Two troublesome letters for me were L and P. My name was Larry and I attended Plymouth Whitmarsh Junior and Senior High School in Pennsylvania. In the ninth grade, I was elected president of our junior high student body. During an assembly of the seventh, eighth and ninth grade, several hundred students, I was beckoned by the principal to join him on stage for the induction ceremony. Standing nervously in front of the squirming, bored uh, crowd, I was told to repeat after the principal the words, I, Larry Crabb of Plymouth Whitmarsh Junior High School, do hereby promise Well, it came across a little bit differently. That's how the principal said it. My version was, I, Larry Crabb of Plymouth Whitmarsh Junior High School, do hereby promise 
The principal was sympathetically perplexed. My favourite English teacher wanted to cry. A few students laughed out loud. Most were awkwardly amused. Some felt bad for me and I died a thousand deaths. I decided right then and there that public speaking was not for me. A short time later, our church celebrated the Lord's Supper in a Sunday morning worship service. It was customary in our congregation to encourage young men to enter into the privilege of worship by standing and praying aloud. That particular Sunday, I sensed the pressure of the saints, not, I fear, the leading of the Spirit, and I responded by unsteadily leaving my chair for the first time with the intention of praying. Filled less with worship than with nervousness, I found my theology becoming confused to the point of heresy. I remember thanking the Father for hanging on the cross and praising Christ for triumphantly bringing the Spirit from the grave. Stuttering throughout, I finally thought of the word, Amen, perhaps the first evidence of the Spirit's leading. (laughs) Said it and sat down. I recall staring at the floor, too embarrassed to look around and solemnly vowing never again to pray or speak aloud in front of the group two strikes were enough. When the service was over, I darted towards the door, not wishing to encounter an elder who might feel obliged to correct my twisted theology, but I was not quick enough. An older Christian man named Jim Dunbar intercepted me, put his arm on my shoulder and cleared his throat to speak. I remember thinking to myself, oh well, here it comes. Just endure it, then get to the car. I then listened to this godly gentleman speak words that I can repeat verbatim today more than 20 years later. Larry, he said, there's one thing I want you to know. Whatever you do for the Lord, I'm behind you 1,000%. Then he walked away. Even as I write these words, my eyes fill with tears. I've yet to tell this story to an audience without at least mildly choking. Those words were life words. They had power. They reached deep into my being. My resolve never again to speak publicly weakened instantly. We have received the words of eternal life. We have words that that give us wisdom to cope with trials and temptation. We've got to receive those words humbly. We've got to live consistently with them. And we've got to speak those words of eternal life to others, not used to cut down people. Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the word that you've given to us. Father, as you implanted in us, help us to accept it humbly. Help us to get rid of those things that don't fit. Help us to do your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I'm a bit of a quotes person. One of my favourite quotes is by a guy called Dallas Willard. And he said, You know what you believe, not by what you say you believe, or not by what you think you believe, but by what you do. Uh, this has been a challenging talk with Hagrid Mike. I know it has been for me, it may have been for you. Um, but know this, that whatever uh, ugliness you, you know in yourself, know that God's grace goes deeper. Um, 